Okay, so today in the studio we have Rebecca Ryle. She has completed a Bachelor of Arts with a major in Creative Writing and a minor in Indigenous and Cultural Studies. She's been previously published in Bent Street, Coastlines, Northerly, Grassroots, and Flunk Magazine, a student-run magazine out of Southern Cross University. Rebecca, welcome to the studio. Hi, Snowy. Thanks for having me. So we've met before, obviously. We've studied together for a long while now, and you're based in Lismore. No, I'm not based in Lismore. Oh. I studied on Lismore campus. I'm based out past Nimbin. Yeah, I mean, I love it out there. There's not many people around. So you are a creative writer. Yep. Um, so what made you come to SCU to start that journey? Uh, well, I think I was at a transition, a definite transition point in my life. My eldest child had passed away and I just needed recovery time really. Uh, and also I needed an income because I hadn't been out of work for a long time caring for her. Uh, so I went on to Ostudy and came to uni and I started, uh, my first enrolment was an uh, associate degree in creative writing. Uh, I thought two years would be a good amount of time to sort of, I guess, reinvent myself. Uh, but I got six months into it and realised I actually really loved studying. I really love studying arts. I think it's very uh, mind expanding. Uh, so I switched over to a Bachelor of Creative Art, uh, sorry, Bachelor of Arts, majoring in creative writing, and I'm still here now. Amazing. So yeah. what? how did you choose those minors? You have the minor in Indigenous and Cultural Studies. Did you kind of just start taking different units and sort of just following following where mm, yeah I did when I started I was really here just to just to be able to write uh, but obviously there are sort of core units that introduce you to other sorts of disciplines and I think I studied Australia Asia and the world was the first sort of cultural studies unit that I took and it just blew my mind open, really. I felt, I felt really silly that I'd never before really considered my own context or had an understanding as to why I believed the things that I believed and how I knew the things that I knew. So I definitely knew I wanted to study more uh, through the cultural studies minor. And then the Indigenous studies... Um, I saved that until last. I did f four units through them over three sessions. Uh, and I'd say that really informed my honours project as well, which is about how it is I experience um, dialogue with country as a non-Indigenous person. Um, yeah, so I guess I always knew I wanted to study Indigenous studies once I had a little bit of exposure to it. Uh, I live in the bush, as I said, I spend a lot of time bushwalking. I feel very, very connected to the area where I live and I guess I'm sort of driven to understand that a little bit more. Right, so studying these, those sorts of units, has that sort of come back and informed your creative process as well? Some of your creative writing, has that sort of kind of changed through studying different things? Uh, that's a good question. I think it really has. When I first started coming to uni, 
pretty much everything I wrote was somehow connected to my daughter who passed away. So I wrote a lot about her. I wrote a lot about um, the experience of sort of loving and losing her and about mothering and about grief. Uh, and that was actually really brutal. It was really hard work to to write those things down in the context of, of being marked on them and being workshopped with other people. That was really hard. Mm. But it was something I was driven to do. I knew that I needed to, to process in that way. And then, yeah, I guess, I guess now my interest, as I said, it's in how I experience dialogue with country. But, but I guess the kernel for that project came about through, through the experience of grief because I knew how valuable it had been for me to be bushwalking through that time. It was a really safe place for me and I learned a lot about myself and living and dying just through contemplating um, the natural world outside of myself. So I think having studied gave me language Right. Um, for what I was trying to get at. And again, the cultural studies stuff is just really wild for understanding why we are the people we are. It's something we never really consider in, in daily life. You never sort of think about why you have the values you have, how you've come about knowledge and whether there's other ways of coming about knowledge. Um, yeah, so in, the, in those ways it's definitely informed my project because my project is looking at, um, yeah, how we know things and how we engage with beings outside of ourselves, whether that be, you know, a storm or a bird uh, or a tree. Um, there are ways of engaging and there are ways of knowing and understanding that is not necessarily found in, in books and the written word. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that must have been a real challenge to kind of come to university at that time and sort of had, you know, going through that process. But also the way that university works is that they have to get marks. <laughs> and mm. that's one of the really funny interplays between mm. having a creative process and also having having someone sort of, you know, judge it and, and have to, you know, conform to a criteria mm. and stuff like that. So Yeah, it's really challenging. You you would have come across it as well in yeah, yours, I'd say. Yeah, not quite to that extent. But yeah, definitely. It, mm. It's definitely a challenge and an interplay between sort of those two things. Mm. So you've, so now you've sort of, that was all your undergraduate. And now is that sort of all that, is that kind of informing your honours project now? Uh I'd say mainly the um, the Indigenous Studies stuff does, and and I think I started out coming from a place of of wanting to wanting to be able to use knowledge gained from the sort of Indigenous original uh, the originals of this country 
in in a way that was not going to be sort of appropriating their understandings. You know, I needed right. to find a way to say, it, this is not my cultural heritage, but it informs my way of being. And I think through... I'm doing a lot of reading. Honours requires you to do a lot of reading (laughs) and to find it all yourself as well. That's the real challenge. But now I'm I'm reading things from from all around the world uh, and lots of different disciplines as well that are all trying to come at the same thing, which is trying to somehow frame um, connectivity and interdependence amongst all things and all beings. So there's many fields of research that are trying to find ways to dissolve the sort of artificial boundaries that we have between ourselves and and not ourselves. So where have you found those sort of, those resources? How have you found them? Who's informing you now and, and sort of kind of shaping this project? Okay, anytime you read a book, it presents hundreds of rabbit holes. (laughs) So what I tend to do is if I see something or someone is referenced a few times in something that I'm reading or in a few things that I'm reading, then I go looking for that, that author or that piece of work. Sometimes things come up completely out of the blue in a completely different context you know I had a conversation with a friend the other day about of all things stolen motorbikes from her (laughs) property and we were just chatting and then I remembered something really interesting that I'd read that I thought she could be interested in because she's also an honours student and she misinterpreted what I said and gave me the name of a researcher and a book that she thought I was talking about it was different to what I was talking about but it was exactly what I needed to find oh wow at that moment so I love that that idea of synchronicity and and things coming just when you're ready for them and that that does seem to sort of be the crux of the research as well is is to develop what they call ontological openness and it's like a just a posture of of readiness, being ready to to be engaged with. Right. Is that sort of a different? Is that sort of a step up from the undergraduate? How are these? Is is it different in workload and the fact that you're sort of on your own now and previously mm. it was sort of a lot more structured? How's yeah. the how's the step up been for you? Is it is it been smooth or? Uh, I wouldn't say smooth. It's. It's um it's really hard cerebral work and it's hard to to sort of maintain the faith that there will be an outcome and that it that outcome is worthy you know lots of the time I just think following this sort of vanity project right. or something but but every now and then I'll encounter something that just says no this is right what you're doing is right yeah um, so I think with undergrad, it's brilliant because everything's curated for you. Everything that might be useful is provided for you in a really structured way. 
whereas with honours, as I said, you've sort of got to find everything yourself and, you know, once you start looking into sort of research methodologies, which you do at the beginning of an honours project, it's like every methodology you find is like a eureka moment and then all of a sudden you've got 15 methodologies all that seem to be speaking to you. Right. Um, There's so many resources out there and determining what's going to be useful and what isn't is probably the hardest. Yeah, okay. Do your supervisors help with that? Who are your supervisors and and how do they help kind of shape and push you in the right direction? Uh, Well, I have two supervisors. I have a creative supervisor who is there to give me obviously input into the creative aspect of what I'm doing and that's a Bundjalung author called Melissa Lukashenko Uh, and then I have who I consider my academic mentor and that's Marcel, Dr. Marcel Townsend Cross. She took some of my cultural studies units um, and I love her way of being and, and way of thinking and she's very available to me, very um, supportive and encouraging. And particularly when I feel like a silly old white lady, she's totally in my corner <laughs> and she says she's so excited about the work that I'm doing, that, that it is being done and and there are conversations to be had around um, what I'm trying to understand, which is how I can be connected without an Indigenous heritage yeah, wow, it's amazing. So you actually have a story that was published in issue two of Flunk magazine, which was called Turkey. And I feel like this story kind of walks these lines a little bit as well. Mm. Um, how did you come up with this story? When did you start writing it? What's some of the background behind that? Well, I came up with this story. I wrote it. I wrote it to be performed because you invited me to come and speak at the Flamingo. Yes, that's right. Literary Salon yep. in Lismore and I immediately ran, oh, no, I can't do that. Nope, I've had bad feedback about my reading. And then I thought, no, I'll challenge myself and I'll do that. And then I read through all of my sort of polished pieces and as I said, most of what I was writing back then really was sort of about grief and I didn't feel comfortable. I just I just felt too exposed to read some of that stuff in a small space with a crowd in front of me. So I wrote this story to be read and it was very topical. I wrote it last summer in the midst of bushfire emergency on the North Coast. So it um, it kind of references that and it brings in uh, elements of dialogue with uh, what we might call the non-human or the the more than human beings around us. Uh, so it is an abridged version that was cut down uh, so it could come into flunk. I think the longer version took me about 15 minutes to read or something, so that right. was a bit longer than what you wanted. Mm. Okay, awesome. Well, without further ado, here is Rebecca Ryle reading out Turkey. Thank you, Snowy. The forest is alive today. Bellbirds chime, swallows chitter, currawongs trill, and there's the call and response of the whipbirds, not yet frightened off by the bellbirds' hostile incursion. The air is filled with the white noise of millions of leaves in the wind. 
tall gums sway and bend shedding leaves, twigs and even small limbs. Larger branches crack and fall, thumping to the floor deeper in the forest. The younger gums are coltish, slender and clumsy in their dance, but the older ones are kind of stately. Only their leaves display their delight, waving about like jazz hands. The fierce wind is visible, sweeping across the treetops in the valley beyond, ruffling papers on my desk and slamming doors on its passage through the house, carrying a whiff of smoke. Various engines whine in the distance as fellow humans wield chainsaws and brush cutters and drive tractors futilely in the face of the continued drought and threat of fire. A constant in this cacophony is the rhythmic scrape of sharp turkey claws against the plywood lid of our compost. The ply is the exact dimensions of the bathtub in which we collect our food scraps to turn into soil. It is often left ajar, allowing entry to one of the turkey brood who roam here. The compost is irresistible to these guys, holding not only food scraps but juicy worms and various bug larvae. The lid at the moment sits securely, but this doesn't phase the turkey. All day he's been there, patiently scraping against the lid, moving it in tiny increments. Eventually the lid will shift, just enough for him to poke his wrinkly, whiskery little head in there and start making a mess of my front yard. There's another out the back, digging laboriously into the fine powder-dry dirt, seeking sustenance, deeper down, where perhaps the soil is not so parched and dying. I watch as the hole gets deep enough that the turkey gets inside and starts pecking away at all the tiny critters it has unearthed. These turkeys are the bane of my existence. Whatever I plant, they dig. Whatever I rake, they redistribute. If I happen to leave a door open in the house, a turkey is sure to take advantage. Faced with the happy accident of an open door, one will wander in and, finding itself confined, panic, throwing itself at any source of light, window, mirror, lamp, and tearing at anything in the way. On the odd occasion, granted entry, one will shit on the bed, spreading the mess around in a frenzy, covering window, bedclothes, books in putrid smears that I, as den mother, am tasked with cleaning up. Bush turkeys have a fold of flaccid yellow flesh around their necks, a bit like a scrotum. Most have only a small amount, somewhat like the loose skin on your elbow. Imagine that around the scrawny neck of a turkey. Not the dominant one, though. You can tell who that is by the size and colour of his gobble. This guy's neck skin swings pendulously, sometimes stretching nearly down to the ground and is a vibrant sunflower bright yellow. He struts and his gobble swings down between his legs. Some weeks ago, I was in the middle of a mad panic, packing cars and cleaning around the house, responding to fires nearby, when I noticed a limping turkey. A week or so later, when the fire mania had well and truly set in and we were all living a new normal, my youngest child also noticed this meant the turkey had been injured for more than a week. It was unable to put weight on one of its legs and was hopping pathetically, slowly, around the yard.
I'm not one to intervene unnecessarily into nature's process. I see my role as witness and I'm familiar with the savage capacity of the universe. Anyway, I did not want to interfere with the survival, or otherwise, of what is essentially a wild animal. And the child, ultimately, did not want a scratched up face, leaving the turkey to its own devices. After a few more weeks, I noticed something else. The turkey was still limping around, despite the relentless heat and difficult conditions. Then one afternoon I spied the dominant turkey, stalking around the perimeter of the yard, keeping all the other turkeys at bay while the injured one hopped and limped and pecked at the dry ground. So it seems the turkey pack look after their own. There's no way that turkey could have survived without the protection of the pack. There are between four and eight bush turkeys sharing this little patch of bush with us, though they tend to range further than I do, frequenting several other dwellings besides mine. I assume they get up to the same mischief everywhere they go. The problem, as I see it, is that they are unwilling to negotiate. There are many other creatures and critters that live on the same patch with us and most seem to be happy to inhabit different territory to me. We have an accord. I won't needlessly disturb their places of work and play and they will similarly respect mine. And it works, mostly. Just not with the turkeys. I recently came across a pictorial map of Bundjalung country. It differed from maps I'm used to in that it contained no words or place names and no topographic information. It was recognisable to me due to the coastal features I'm familiar with. The images on the map related to creation stories held by all the different mobs of the Bundjalung nation of Indigenous Australia. While they all have their own stories, which connect to the specific geography and ecology of their own lands, each country's stories all connect and weave together into a greater narrative. This serves to bind together the human and non-human inhabitants of this place and describes movements around country. I was curious as to how my place might be represented on this symbolic story map. I located myself at Goanna Headland, a significant landmark to all Bundjalung peoples and a recognisable feature located around Evans Head. I travelled up the coast past Arakwal country at Byron, a little further north, and then headed west to look for the area where I live, just southwest of Wollumbin. Lo and behold, what do you think was the symbol I found there? A damn turkey. Of course this is turkey country. In other areas, not even that far from here, turkeys are endangered and so they are protected. I feel like my resident turkeys know this, such is their arrogance and sense of entitlement. But really, it makes perfect sense for me to find them there on that map. The turkeys outside are so sure of themselves, so well adapted to this environment, and completely unperturbed by my attempts to domesticate the surroundings. I'm confronted by a deeply buried but foundational value of my culture. As a non-Indigenous person, it is hard to let go of the idea that I should be dominant. These turkeys know who really rules the roost. I disperse the pile of small rocks at my front door. 
get rid of the water guns and resolve to watch the turkeys instead of chasing them away. Perhaps they have some clues for me about how to live in this place. Rebecca Ryle, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you, Snowy, for the opportunity. 